0: Hey everybody, it's Brad here. Before we get started with the show today, I wanted to take a minute and let you guys know about our coaching program we run here at MacroZinc. We believe that every person on the planet deserves to live their healthiest and best life. A qualified nutrition coach and personal trainer can be the key to living that life. At MacroZinc, we provide fully customized one-on-one nutrition coaching and online personal training that has changed the lives of 10,000 people and counting. We offer a two-week free trial for our nutrition coaching and you can get started risk-free today. Just go to macrosinc.net slash services and sign up. Let's get into the show. Welcome back to the show. this is episode number seventy three and we have a special guest today dr. Michael stair, who's a regular. This is his every other week podcast that he comes on and today we talk about whether you need to see a physical therapist or a personal trainer for any of the injuries or issues that you're working through Let's get into the show. Welcome back to the show, dr. Michael Stare. I feel like whenever I call you doctor, I have to call you Michael and not just Mike. So, Dr. Michael Stare, welcome back to the show. It's been a couple of weeks since you've been on. We've got a bunch of topics today, but the real question is how much uh, surfing and paddleboarding have you been able to do? And what other exciting things have you been doing with your time?
1: I, I like how you um, call it the surfing because I'm actually so bad at surfing, I've almost given up on it. I do uh, boogie boarding. <laughs> because I'm it's so much easier and I don't get hurt as much um so I did get a few rounds in uh in the last couple of weeks which I'm super excited about and uh paddleboarding there's these green heads which are kind of like from the midwest they're also called horse flies uh they're awful so they went away so I got a chance to get on the board a little bit more uh paddleboarding it's it's been awesome so not as much as I'd like but a few sessions so it's been good
0: well, zero is better than, uh, or one is better than zero. So that's always <laughs> I
1: do like zero being better than none though. It does sound better.
0: <laughs> I should have just said that and then not thought about it and then been like, oh, that was dumb.
1: Yeah. That should be your, your quote of the day.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to use that. I'm going to tell my wife that I'm be like, honey, I had the most profound thing that I said this morning. Zero <laughs> is better than none. And she'll be like, what?
1: Yeah. Uh, Yogi Bear is uh, rolling over in his grave right now.
0: Exactly. Uh, cool. We've got a bunch of topics today. Um, kind of the first theme, and then we've got a bunch of sub-questions in it, is physical therapy versus personal training. And you've got probably a pretty interesting, unique perspective on this because you kind of have one foot in each world. Um Right so kind of the the biggest broad topic question that we can dive into specifics from there is when should you see a physical therapist versus a personal trainer
1: yeah and, and just for a little more background on that i I started out as a trainer uh went uh back uh, to become physical therapist and then has been have been working in dual capacities ever since um, I think for the 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 person who's seeking, um, you know, to get rid of pain, to get healthier, to get more fit and improve their performance, some of the key indicators. And I think this is helpful if you're a trainer or a therapist as well. Um, in the context where you've had like an acute injury, um, you've had some sudden event, um, or, you know, both at the same time, that would be an indicator that you want to get seen by a physical therapist. And there's actually really good data and evidence on that. So, um, imagine you, you know, were sprinting and all of a sudden a sudden, uh, pain in your, in the back of your thigh. Um, you've, you know, sprained your ankle playing basketball. You, uh, went to go pick up something awkwardly heavy at home and you hurt your back. Um, that's definitely an indicator to see physical therapy first. Um, but I also want to, um, caution people to think that it is a either or choice. Um, I have had people in physical therapy who broke their arms, and we're concurrently seeing our trainers and and myself in personal training. And one key reason to to emphasize that is uh, when people do something like break their arm or have an injury, uh, it's not only the pain, it's also the overwhelming uh, amount of things that you can't do that tends to really weigh heavily on you. And when I can show them that even with a broken arm, here are some exercises you can do so you don't compound the problem by also getting deconditioned. And that has really had a huge impact, um, having um, uh, having the, the resources to show people that in their training studio as well as having a therapy clinic. so that would be one situation um if you've had a procedure uh like you're just coming off of a, a herniation um uh, or a, a hernia repair um you've had some other type of surgery obviously a rotator cuff comes to mind um or a significant illness um where your status needs to be monitored uh pre-regularly that would be another scenario where um i would say physical therapy primarily um Let's say you're having um, symptoms that are progressively getting worse. Um, they don't seem to be uh, responding as, as anticipated to exercise, um, or they seem to always come and go. Um, that would be a case where I think it would be both um, a good idea to have physical therapy and training. Um, again, I think the impetus is to stop training altogether until the problem gets quote-unquote fixed. But that is a time where I find the communication and collaboration between uh, a great trainer and a great therapist does wonders for the for the patient. Um, so that would be a key thing. Um, if somebody's simply deconditioned, they're weak, um, they have performance goals, uh, they're trying to lose fat. That's where the trainer would take the primary role. Um, there are some circumstances. If they've had a long history of injuries, um, maybe it would be a good idea to get at least a PT consult. Um so that those are some, I, I think, some relatively you know common scenarios. I think the key point though, and this is something I take for granted: one, always have a really clear, open dialogue with the client/slash patient, because the more they feel comfortable articulating their symptoms or their conditions to you, uh, the more it will be clear as to whether you need to, um, you know, seek another professional to help out. And secondly, always have um, at least one or two professionals in either primary care or in physical therapy or in training that you can communicate with. Um, for probably the last 20 years of my career, I've had the opportunity to bounce ideas off of other clinicians or other trainers um, at any whim. So if a patient's giving me a, a symptom that I'm like, you know what, let me bounce this scenario off of somebody else and just talk it through. That's so invaluable. My, my wife is a primary care provider. So, and I've had worked in a lot of medical environments. So it's so helpful to be able to have that ability to, to talk it out just for your own reasoning, but also voicing it will sometimes get another perspective that would pick up on something that I wouldn't have thought of. Um, And that's true for, I think, any profession, but definitely having that physical therapy slash personal training collaboration um, at the minimum, um, if you can include a medical provider as well, um, that's a luxury, I know, but it is also something that is far worth the time that you would spend trying to develop those
0: relationships. One of the questions that I think a lot of people have is what is the difference in scope of practice um, and I guess like approach that physical therapists have versus personal trainers? Like where is the overlap and where are the distinct areas?
1: Yeah, I'd like to start with the overlap because um, I don't think that's emphasized as much. And again, given my my unique experiences with both, uh, I find there's so much commonality. Um, the big overlap is I wouldn't say this in every case, but in most cases is the uh, the push towards uh, Using activity as a means of both preventing and improving status Whether it be pain or performance Um, at the center of it is movement and graded movement Um, movement graded for the person's abilities those are unique. Those are skills that are uh, unique to both trainers and therapists. Um, something that in the medical world, they call the therapeutic alliance, which uh, I think trainers just pretty much intuitively know is having a good relationship with your with your client. That is probably the second most common thing. So I know it's not getting into specifically what you're saying is scope of practice, but I do think it's the most valuable component because. If they're absent in either one of those environments uh, i i don't see good outcomes conversely if they are strong um, you know regardless of how many degrees they have formally or how many certifications they have uh, that's critical i think where there's a big difference is uh, physical therapists um, are very well trained in what's called differential diagnosis so When somebody has shoulder pain, a therapist is thinking, is that referred to the neck? Um, Is that an acute sign of a um, very unfortunate cardiac event going on? Um, You know, I think they are more readily to spot pain in someone's back as being like, okay, so yeah, it's probably back issues. It could be related though to um, kidney stones and in somebody that has a familial history, and a personal history of cancer, um, and it's unexplained and it's seemingly also correlating with unexplained weight loss and uh, waking up in the middle of the night, that is a sign that I need to immediately get them in contact with a medical professional. Uh, Perhaps, although rare, it could be cancer. So I think that's the unique skill that physical therapists have is knowing how to differentiate. This is a musculoskeletal issue that we can treat and help. Uh, Versus this is a medical problem that is outside of a scope of practice. Um, That is something that I know uh, the best trainers have a hard time doing. Um, And then finally, I think um, uh, assessment. Uh, Trainers are better at assessing people's readiness for fitness, uh, their um, progress with uh, body recomposition, um, their um, capacities for various sport or various performance. Physical therapists, I think, are better at evaluating those who are of lower status or um, what mechanical, what neurological impairments that they have that may or may not allow them to do certain activities. Um, So that, I think, is why physical therapists have so much formal education, um, is that they spend so much time learning about differential diagnosis in other conditions beyond the musculoskeletal system, Um, whereas trainers are mostly focusing on musculoskeletal issues as it pertains to um, higher level function.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the, the big things that differentiates, you know, not only like personal trainers and physical therapists, but I think a lot of kind of the health and wellness professions is versus the medical professions is the training and diagnostics. Um, you know, and I think that differentiates a lot of, you know, what we do in kind of the health, wellness, personal training, nutrition, coaching space versus the more medical fields, physical therapy, actually being a physician, you know, those types of things is really just the, the diagnostic skills, um, versus the other skills. Right. Right. So, when you think about you know you obviously kind of cross into to both worlds um, in kind of your day to day practice when you 're working as a physical therapist and you kind of have that hat on, how much of the personal training bleeds into that
1: a considerable amount um, it in my mind, it is uh, not distinguishable uh, it 's a continuum uh, that 's one of the reasons why I named my uh, training business spectrum is that. You know, it ebbs and flows across the spectrum. And there's a necessary divide because of the reasons we mentioned before, but more pragmatically because um, of what insurance covers and what it doesn't cover. Um, I look at um, anybody that comes in, let's say if they have a back problem, I always, I'm very, I'd say at least a dozen times a day, I I say the statement. I said, when I'm trying to help you, Um, the worst case scenario is that I could probably make you, I could definitely make you more healthy. Um, that's going to be the worst outcome that's going to happen. Um, the best outcome is that I also might be able to figure out what's going on with your pain and get rid of that. So I think too many therapists are focusing on pain and the short term, let's try to do what we can to make them feel better. And I don't want to minimize how vital and important that is. That's why they're there to see you. Um, but also introducing them to the concepts of, even though we're trying to work on your, on your back issues, you can concurrently work on getting healthier and getting stronger and more capable, which oftentimes concurrently does help your pain, but it's also going to help your health and your fitness. So although they're not coming in there to say, I want to get healthy and fit and look better, they're coming in there like my back hurts and I need to be able to work and pick up my kids and I need to get that better as soon as I can. So I come in with it with very um, common knowledge of our common approach that a a personal trainer would have, which is I want them to become more strong and more capable and more healthy. Um, But also sensitive to the fact that the patient is seeing me at this moment because they're predominantly focused on their pain. Um, So, I, it, it's hard for me given i've been practicing for 25 years now in uh, both domains uh, to distinguish the difference um it's mostly a uh, a continuum and definitely it's in the interests and in the minds of the patient that's where i see the biggest difference
0: um so when we think about like your experience working with people do you have any case studies of when you've kind of worked with somebody and you've kind of decided hey i need to treat this person as a pt versus i need to treat this person as a personal trainer and kind of what directed you towards each path
1: yeah i i'm i think that's going to be really productive to talk about because it i think without having it in the context of actual examples it's really hard to appreciate you know the difference. So. Um, a few of them come to mind. Uh, One is a patient who was uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. She was a personal training client. So she never was a patient. She came to us directly to get in shape, to get stronger, prevent any health issues, maybe lose a little body fat, but that wasn't her primary goal. She just wanted to get in good shape. And in working with her for years, she's not very expressive, but Opened up a little bit more over time and started mentioning that she has had this persistent shoulder problem. She started not wanting to do certain exercises fearing her shoulder was going to be an issue so we, you know modified things accordingly and um And, and then it became something where it was being modified so often for so long That it wasn't behaving like we would expect a typical shoulder issue and she had a very stoic disposition so it, it. She wasn't very willing or interested in wanting to go into a formal bout of physical therapy. So I started with a line of questioning with her that started getting her to appreciate that where I was going, which is that I don't think this is a um, a normal. Just my shoulders achy because I'm old, um, or it's just because of some wear and tear. Um, I was pointing out evidence shows that that's not usually the case. So finally, she asked me, what do you think it is? I said, well, the only way I can tell is if I do a series of examination things that would delineate that this might be a neck issue. And that got our attention. So she said, okay. I said, so next time you come in, do you want to do this as a physical therapy appointment? If you do, we could go through insurance and could treat it that way. And she said, well, can you just look at my neck and shoulder and figure it out? I said, yes. So again, we have physical therapists and trainers on both sides of things. So we did a quick exam and it became very clear I could make her pain worse and better based on doing maneuvers uh, to her neck. Um, I showed her that she had strength um, uh, impairments that had nothing to do with her shoulder. For example, her wrist extensors were weak on her right side. There's no connection between your wrist extensors, mechanics, and your shoulder. Um, so we found that there is a connection to your c7 And she did start realizing that you know what it is worse than when i'm at work It's worse on tuesdays when I have a long day of work versus saturdays where I don't So long story short that is an example where somebody Was in training was still training doing fine. Her shoulder wasn't horrible, but it was not it was getting worse and It wasn't something we could fix by just simply getting stronger um Do you want to go over an example maybe going the uh the other way yeah so this is a super common scenario too um somebody was uh went to see their primary or their primary care doctor Uh, she had very bad knee problems sent it to an orthopedist orthopedist says yeah i think we're going to need a new knee replacement but you're fairly young um, you haven't tried doing any other course of treatment Um, why don't you start with physical therapy and she did physical therapy and her pain went from probably like a seven out of 10 to maybe a three to four out of 10. So something that was manageable. She could walk 10 minutes as opposed to five minutes. Still, it was great, but it wasn't something where she was thinking urgently, I need to get this operated on. So we worked with her and we showed her the evidence. Uh, you're getting better. This is great, but you're probably not going to keep getting better unless you keep getting in better shape. And she was significantly overweight and we showed her the evidence because I know that's a sensitive topic to talk about saying this. There are two variables that tend to correlate with this. One is is strength and and activity and the other is uh, body weight. Um, She was very accepting of that and wanted to know how she could lose weight, but still feel that somebody knew how to monitor her condition. Um, So that's where she went in the training. That is what made the biggest difference. She went from that random bouts of three to five, sometimes six out of 10 pain to zero out of 10 pain. She lost 80 pounds, um, canceled knee surgeries, and was doing great. That's a perfect example. And most of that occurred from the training set of things. So the analogy I give, I tell people that in physical therapy, we're just trying to get you into the arena and show you where the starting line is. In training, that's when the race begins. That's when the event begins. So those are two cases and there's been, there's dozens of other examples we could talk about, but I think that illustrates some pretty common scenarios that shows the interplay and, and how the two have worked together.
0: When you try to kind of guide people down the right path, how often do you see people like mentally being a spot where they just want to go towards the more, uh, physical therapy, like I have a medical issue that needs to be addressed versus they're willing to be like, Hey, this is actually just some, some work that I need to do to solve this problem. About,
1: I would say earlier in my career, um, 95% of the time was the former. Um, I want to come in. I heard you're really good at, you know, cracking people's backs and, you know, you know, rubbing on tendons. And so, and I want to get better quick. Um, I'd say in most general practices, then the percentage is probably pretty similar. I'm a little bit skewed right now because I've been in the community for a while. Um, I've been speaking and writing to an audience for a while. So I think a lot of the people that see me are already, um, in tune with my, my philosophy, which is that I'm not some Mr. Miyagi that's going to clap my hands and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, you magically make this disappear. Uh, there is going to be some collaboration at the very least, and at, the, at and, and most likely a lot of work in your part. Um, so, I'd say right now there are at least sixty percent of the people are more in that uh, realm of. Um, I know there's work to be done that I have to do. I, maybe I'd say eighty percent, but then half of those people they know there's work to be done. Just, they're just not ready to do the work yet. And I'm very, um, I wouldn't, I don't know. I, I guess understanding of that, you know, I'm a busy person and I have a lot of things going on. I get all the obstacles there are. Um, so I think a lot of people that I see now are they get that they need to do some work, that there's some long-term things that need, need to be done. They need to commit to doing this for the term. Um, but they aren't in a place where they can do all that commitment. That's probably the majority of people. So what I try to do is the ones that are ready to commit, I give them the the, the smoothest, frictionless path to do that. The ones that aren't, I show them this is the best option. This is the minimal um, option that would have some effect. So I call it the BTN approach. Uh, so this is where your zero is better than nothing comes into play. Um, <laughs> this uh, is you know what I'll tell classic. them is, uh, yeah, that's going to keep coming up. Um, <laughs> I tell them usually that like, listen, okay. So you might not be able to commit to doing um, maybe all the necessary things that I would recommend. Here are two or three things. Could you commit to doing two or three things that would move the ball forward? At least that's about a 90%, you know, yeah, I can do that. So I I guess it's pretty similar to, you know, helping people with fat loss or helping people with, you know, getting fit.
0: An interesting observation I've made over the course of my career, both like just working with clients directly and then owning the business is, I think we have a pretty big like disposition earlier in our career of, Hey, I can motivate people to want to do something. Um, And I think the further along we get in our career is we start to realize like we can't go chase people and try to get them to want to do something. Um, We really just have to be a conduit for when they're ready, they'll come to us and then they'll be able to be in a spot where they can make the change. Would you say you have a pretty similar experience with that?
1: I think that that motivation is... A, a catch-all too often for a lot of these people Um, we try to label people as motivated or not motivated and I try to stay away from that And the reason being is that one motivation in my mind is a state not a trait Yeah, it's it's a fleeting emotion that comes and goes. It's not like eye color or you know height um I see many people do very well when they're not motivated and I see others that You know don't do as well as I should when they're motivated they get this like false halo effect on it When I see somebody that's having problems with motivation. I'm not ready to do this. I don't want to do this um, I try to look into why And without prying too much, um, maybe throughout conversation Um, I usually look for is it because they don't believe they can do it So if that's the issue if they're like I can't do this I'm too old I'll I'll press pretty hard because that's a, that's a it's it's a relatively simple thing to overcome because I can show them examples I can show them people who are 400 pounds who were able to move and feel better um, so I think if it's a self-efficacy thing I don't believe I can do it that's usually where I I get pretty involved in thinking I'm going to make a difference here um, the other circumstances they don't think it works. Like, yeah, I know I should exercise, but I don't really believe it's going to help bone-on-bone knee arthritis. That's why I do seminars. So I'll say, listen, you know, I get that. That's what I've thought at one point, and many people have. Would you be open to me showing you some of the evidence on that? Because that's a, that's a question I've explored. So that's, again, another scenario where I get involved. Um, when people don't think it might be worth it. So I get that eating right and exercising will help my pain and help this. It's just the cost of doing that isn't worth the benefit I think I'm going to get. That's probably something I don't know if I'm going to be able to change. Yeah. That calculus is something that, you know, I know people that like, I know I would feel better and look better if I didn't drink beer all the time and, you know, sit on my butt and watch TV, but that's kind of what I really like to do more than all those other things. So I, that's kind of like, I get it. I, I, I'm not going to really change that. Um, so those are some of the big, that, I guess that's how I look at that scenario is not lump it into motivation or not motivation, but rather dissect it a little bit more and, and see um, what component is really feeding that want. And is there a part of that component that I can break down and, and influence positively? Um or is there something that's outside of my realm that they're not ready to hear that?
0: Uh, yeah. Um let's see, we've got a couple other topics. Oh, here's a here's one that I would say would probably resonate with a lot of our audience is uh kind of one of the case studies that you might have is a a physical therapy patient who wants to do a you know couch to five K and they have severe back pain. Um I would say that's pretty common for a lot of people, I would say, especially as you get, you know, into your thirties, forties, and fifties, um, kind of walk me through that case study. Cause I know you kind of mentioned that was somebody that you'd worked with and it might be a good example.
1: Yeah, that, that was one of my favorite scenarios because whenever there is a specific cause that they want to pursue and pain is getting in the way, they're not looking just to get rid of pain. They're looking to achieve a function and pain is getting in the way. Yeah. So those are people that I get super excited about, even if they are light years away from their end goal. Um, This lady was, she was literally, literally had to crawl into the waiting room. Um, Couldn't stand upright on her own volition without being in excruciating pain. Um, which is pretty intimidating when you're the one that's trying to help them and there's a crowd because there's a waiting room. I mean, it's, it's not a great situation, obviously for anybody, but certainly for her. Um, and especially if you know the person, like not to be a a hysterical person, a very, very educated, strong, you know, willed person. So that's the exact what comes to my mind. Um, getting rid of the pain, um, is actually, uh, a very very high likely thing um it, so it's going you can reassure them very very strongly and that's really the the first you know bout in that case was like you're going to feel better um it's almost 100 percent guarantee um the quickness by which we can do that um how we can prevent you from making it worse that's where the skill is going to come into play but this is going to get better um and it did but that wasn't really her main concern. It's like, okay, we got this now. Now I, I, I mean, I'm barely walk. Yeah. I'm out of, you know, a lot of pain now, but how in the hell am I going to be able to run? And I have this image in my mind. She used to be a runner and she got out of shape and she tried to run again and then had got injured and things went really bad. So that's where you just lay out a plan. You take something that seems like climbing Mount Everest and you break it down into manageable steps where there's checkpoints where you can verify that you're actually moving closer to the goal because those people tend to fascinate over the goal the 5k or you know half marathon whatever it is and when it's so far and beyond them they, they can't see the incremental progress but when you break it down and you show this is the plan this is the checkpoints this is how we get there and you have a clear path and show them that that gets really fun so we did that in the context of physical therapy. And then it being, became pretty clear that I can, we can stress your body and have a predictable response. I know if we do this, then you're not going to feel worse. And once it became so predictable to both her and I, then it was like, well, what's the most efficient environment to get you like really strong and really fit and really healthy? You know, I think... Rather than having a treatment table and a copay in insurance, I think you need to be not constrained anymore by what we can and can't do and code and worry that you're not going to get reimbursed or, or we're going to have to cut off care. We're going to have to stop and get more um, visits and try to document why you need more visits, even though you're not in pain anymore. You can get up and down the stairs so it became clear to her and i that moving into uh the fitness side of things so she got control of her weight lost a substantial amount of weight got strong like not you know uh 10 pound hand weight strong it's like able to deadlift and jump and then the transition to running began and she she ran half marathons within about nine months um and again, the most extreme of those things happened in the context of training. But a lot of it was the confidence that I wasn't working with her. One of our younger trainers was working with her with far less experience. But she had the confidence that was built: a being through therapy, and b um, knowing that we were literally a you know a doorway away from if there needed to be any communication, if there was any changes and progress and symptoms um, we could address it in the short term. And it never happened. There was never a case where her trainer had to come to me and say, Hey Mike, something's going the wrong way with her. Um, what do we do? How do we tweak it? But knowing that was there made a huge difference for her.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the things when you kind of, walk, talk through that story. One of the quotes that comes to mind is that we overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10. Um, maybe not on the same time frame, but you know, I think when we, when we have injuries or we have, you know, pain with, with exercise, I think we all have, at least myself, a kind of urgency to solve the problem as quick as possible. Um, and don't really think about, okay, if I approach this from a, what do I want to be able to do in two years from now, um, approach and and how we go about doing that, would you say that rings true with a lot of your experience from working with clients and kind of, how do you convince people to think about the more longer term timeline to do things kind of the right way?
1: Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, it's much easier to do, ironically, in personal training when I see clients in, in that component. Uh, one, because of the structure of our training environment, they have to commit 6 to 12 to 18 months, depending on uh, the thing. So that's, that's already baked into the culture. Um, plus, I think it's just when people go into training, they kind of know that um, this is going to be something that I have to adapt to. It's much harder to do in physical therapy. Uh, Because, again, it's baked into being, you know, your insurance gives you X amount of visits or you get X amount of time. Yeah. And whether you get continued care is usually based on the swiftness of the resolution. If you can't show that you're making substantial changes in their pain pattern or the range of motion, some other objective finding, um, you're often going to get denied for further care. It's ironic. You know, it's like uh, it's like cardiac rehab. You only get it when you're bad enough, but you can only continue it, you know, if, you know, your progress is being documented. Yeah. So um, that being said, I don't think it's necessarily bad that there is a short-term focus. Because where I think a lot of our physical therapy patients have problems with is that um, they're, they're like, well, I'm not better yet. And then their mind better is that they can run again. Whereas I'm thinking you couldn't walk or even put any weight on this foot three weeks ago. Yeah. And now you're doing steps, you know? Yeah. So I actually try to get them more often to sh- focus on the short term in physical therapy. Um, and then once they achieve milestones or they start stagnating, that's where I start transitioning to, okay, you've achieved this, you achieved that you're feeling better, but let's, Let's stop expecting just the minimum,
0: and let's show you what's what's possible. Um, when you have those types of patients, um, what do you generally tell them is the time frame for like addressing the acute pain, and what's the time frame for returning to like general daily function, and then what's the time frame for like return to you know? like full capacity. Cause I think those are kind of the three big milestones, at least when I think about when I've had injuries, like, okay, when am I going to be not in like pretty bad acute pain? When am I going to be able to like, just go through the day without like having any issues? And then when am I going to be back to mostly full function realizing every year I age and I'm going to be <laughs> a little less, uh, I'm going to be uh zero is greater than none or none is greater than zero. Um, I'm going to be a little bit less than I maybe was two years ago, but like Um, kind of what do you generally tell people on timeframes? I know, uh, like different injuries have different timeframes, but like, how's that, how does that conversation go?
1: Yeah. You know, obviously there's, you know, specific nuances depending on the circumstance, but in general, I almost never try to commit to that. Um, because the honest answer I tell them is, I don't know. I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, but what i do know is what the next step is and i do know what will more likely make the progression to what you want to do um, get rid of pain or improve your function will probably make that likelihood uh, less likely to happen and i do know what will make that likelihood more likely to happen and that isn't usually met with um a lot of enthusiasm when i present that and i do that on purpose because I think one of the worst things you can do as a clinician is to give somebody false expectations and commit to a certain timeline, because what happens when that timeline comes and goes and you didn't meet that you've yeah. lost them for good. So um, I think it's a dangerous game to play to tell people that I can get rid of your sciatica in two weeks, or, you know, you're going to be back to hundred percent function in um, six weeks Uh, You know, that is probably one of the most challenging things I contend with when a patient comes to see me and they had a consult with an orthopedist or a neurologist or so, and they told them, um, you know, after this disc issue, you should be 100% after six weeks. And the level of defeat that they have planned their whole life on, like, well, I got this golf tournament coming up in seven weeks with my buddies, so I had a disectomy you know, uh, back in, you know, early June. So I'm going to be all ready for that. And then they see me and I'm like, well, you still are having positive, you know, neural signs when you do this and just doing some basic low load activities. That's a fraction of the load you're going to experience when you take a divot is causing you pretty significant pain. Um, I try to temper their expectations. Um, that's a really difficult position to be in. So Um, even if I did know the specific nuance of the case, uh, I try to stay far away from that and just focus on, on the process because it is unpredictable, even in the best of, of, you know, information and, and examination skills. Uh,
0: any other case studies that you've got that you kind of want to chat through? And we're thinking about the physical therapy versus personal training side.
1: Yeah, so I want to show. I want to talk about one of my favorite ones because I think this a lot of people identify with this um, in the context of um, you know a typical training environment. So um, this guy, I've been I've known him for about twelve years, and he's a very typical gym guy, um, working out, trying to get strong, and his shoulders were just killing him. So he came to see uh, us in the training side of things. And he's convinced that he has a labral tear, um, a rotator cuff tear, um, and you know, perhaps cervical radiculopathy. He's one of those guys that reads every single uh, thing there, there is out there. Super educated guy. He's an attorney. Um, he's on every supplement, you know, and he's done every type of training program. And I said, "All right, well, let's first look at see what's what's causing this." But he wanted to see me to do some and he's like i'll pay out of pocket for you to do therapy on my shoulder uh, maybe i need some art maybe i do this long story short his program sucked it was it was one of the most horrendous thing if i wanted to cause somebody to have horrible shoulders i would probably design something that what he was doing and he fought me tooth and nail he thought he needed to be doing 58 different versions of pressing and at a volume that would make even the most you know, chemically assisted bodybuilder, um, a little bit overwhelmed and it, it really just came down to good training, good program, actually not even good training. I I didn't have to motivate him. I didn't have to instruct him on really good technique. It was pretty much, you got to trust me on this. I've had the exact same, see, that was the other benefit. I was exact same age as the guy. And I had very similar issues that he had complained of. I just needed to do programming. I was actually pushing him away. For, he wanted to go into physical therapy. I said, you don't need physical therapy. You just need to stop doing dumb things and have better training in your That's plan. That's the I advice did. we all need. <laughs> right. And, and he's such a cool guy that, I mean, I, I got to know him well enough that I could actually speak to him like that and, and not have him get offended, but know that it was coming from a good place. And I was like, man, you're just not, you're just doing dumb things to yourself. You don't have something that needs to be medicalized or manipulated or over-examined. And, you know, of course, he listened to me sometimes and sometimes he wouldn't. But more of the times than not, he did. And every time we had a breakthrough, he's like, Mike, I don't know what the heck you just did. But my shoulder's like, doesn't bother me at all. And I'm getting bigger. And I've actually cut, you know, some weight. And he's big into before and after stuff. And, you know, it's been 10 years on and off. Um, It's just steering them down the right path. So I think that's a great case where um, I think some people are overly eager to get medically managed and he just needed a good training program. Say, so, you know what, let's just try switching up your training, you know, and see what goes on for the next two months. And lo and behold, things get like 90% better. So uh, I think it's underappreciated by therapists and probably just as much so by training of how many things you can fix by just steering people um, with the right program. Um, and I think that's probably huge with your clientele at Macros because they tend to be people that are, um, from what I've observed at least, uh, very well-informed and they, they follow, uh, You know, I mean, these are people that are tracking what they eat all the time. So they tend to follow um, trends about training and be very meticulous about that. So many trainers could help these people stay out of the clinic if they just, you know, overemphasize how important a uh, programming is.
0: Yeah. And I think one of, one of the best parts about the kind of the internet side of the health and fitness industry is that we have a lot of people who have self-taught themselves a lot of stuff. Um, one of the bad sides is there's not a lot of experiential knowledge that people have too, right? Like you can see a program on paper that ticks all the boxes, but until you've trained a lot of people or you've been through it yourself, like it's really hard to understand what that volume is actually doing to your body. Um, so how do you think about like, how do people try to figure out for themselves what's appropriate for them in terms of like the right volume, right? So the client you just mentioned was like, probably like a lot of our clients, pretty on top of it, pretty motivated, wants to get results. And they think like, hey, if I just do more volume, if I exercise more, it's going to get me better results. But we know from experience and textbooks and all sorts of stuff that that's definitely not the case. Um, But how do you get people to understand what is an appropriate volume for them of exercise to actually do? So there's,
1: there's three approaches that I've tried. Approach number one is give them data. Give them evidence. Um, That's one I like the most, and that's the one that works the least. Yep, (laughs) (laughs) I like to think that just because I spent a lot of time amassing some great solid evidence, it will A, validate myself and my experience, and B, people will say, thank God this guy's got such a... Dearth of information and that's all I needed. It was just a good synopsis of a few randomized control studies And now I know what to do and that doesn't go great. It, It doesn't work very well Yeah, um, the second interestingly is um Is is showing them case studies of people that look like them or are of similar circumstances so That's what worked for this guy and the interesting thing was is that the case study was me We were almost the same stature almost the same age um, both starting businesses and you know and families and um, And I said, okay, so you're doing x amount of volume. Let me show you what i'm doing Let me let's contrast the amount of time you're spending six to eight hours i'm spending three to three and a half hours let's contrast our results i know there's individual variations mm-hmm. but if we look at the evidence you're on the incredibly high side of that and i'm on the moderate to low side of that what if you could get similar results maybe even better results with less time and then i think the final thing is identifying what their personal problems are this guy's personal problem was he was, had a lifestyle where he could afford to spend six to eight hours a week in the gym, and now he can't, and, and they're starting to come to a clash. So that was a big concern for him, and we're also trying to piece together that you and I aren't going to be any different in five or 10 years. We're still going to be meatheads at 45, at 55, at 65, or we're still going to be vain and want to look a certain way. So what do you think is going to happen if you get laid up for a surgery for eight months? Because he didn't take, you know, my advice on this. He goes, Oh, it's so much harder. Stay lean at this age. I'm like, yep. So that got him to, to change and listen. Um, so I think personal anecdotes, although they're derided from a, um, you know, a scientific you know view, they're highly effective. Uh, I mean, that's how, Beachbody rose to fame, right. By just showing all these testimonials. Um, but I think they can be, if they're used in the right way, they can be manipulated for the, for the good, um, and getting to people's personal, um, struggles and making it relevant to that personal struggle. I think people will be more likely to, to listen and, and, and change based on those components.
0: Yeah. I think people always just resonate with personal stories. Um, You know, I just think about on the nutrition side of coaching, you know, one of the things that we run into a lot, which is always a difficult subject to broach with people is the, Hey, there's no way that you're eating, you know, 1200 calories a day and not losing weight. Like you're obviously not reporting. Right. But you can't like, you send them a paper showing like, Hey, this is how many people under report. Or you're like, Hey, you're definitely not reporting that conversation never really works. Right. It's it's always a, like, hey, here was my struggle when I was stuck. Here's what I noticed about myself that I was doing that I wasn't really aware of. Um, but once I kind of addressed this, things started to work for me. And that's always a much better approach than like, hey, you're a human. Humans are terrible at self-report. You need to fix yourself. <laughs> it's like that's never going to go over well and it's never going to work. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, there was something that really um, drove that point home for me. I, I, I don't know the specifics of the story, but there was someone trying to work on raising money. Um, I think it was back in the 80s for Ethiopia and their struggle of getting funding. And they showed them all this data of the starvation and the death. And they prevented it, presented it in these informational components. And they thought we were going to overwhelm them, show them all this data of the suffering and the pain that was going on. And their donations, you know, barely trickled in. And then they started picking specific people. You know, um, you know, this is, you know, Rowena, who is, you know, 11 years old. And they followed her around and told her story. Donations started pouring in. So I think there's that element of that personal connection to a story of a real person that really resonates. And, of course, if you use it in the right context and you back it up, with data uh, that also helps but um yeah that really convinced me
0: what's also interesting about that story is there's a very similar one of where they did the same thing and they used like one person two people three people four people five people six people and then eventually they had like 20 or 30 people that they were like using in the commercial and every time they added another person into like the story it got less and less effective Oh wow! So it's like the hyper focus on one person's story of just like, hey, here's a person that we helped, always resonates way more than if it's like, hey, here's the five thousand people we've helped. It's like here's the one person, and you're that one person. Works. A, it's interesting that it works across like all industries and, and all genres um, and all approaches. Yeah, it's pretty wild. <clears throat> Well, Mike, this has been awesome. Uh, any other parting words before I let you get onto your, your day, which you have the least packed schedule in the history of Mike's life. So <laughs> I don't want to hold you up for all the excitement. So what, what last things do you want to cover before I let you go? Um, I think
1: the key thing is is um, is this reiterated point from before, which is um, if you're a client you know, you're, or, uh, um, or somebody who's seeking help, Um, have a lot of faith in your, in your trainer, um, have a lot of, uh, you know, faith in your, in your therapist, you know, make sure there's somebody that you, you connect with, you know, tell them, communicate a lot with them. Don't just walk in and say, fix me or, you know, push me hard, you know, so I can lose this weight, communicate with them, talk with them, get a relation with them. These are people that once they get to know you, um, they will be able to pick up on signs that you might not be picking up on yourself and be able to better help you. Um, if you're a coach, if you're a therapist, um, don't isolate yourself. Don't think that you're going to be the one to fix them. Um, collaborate, discuss with other trainers, with other therapists, you'll be able to help your patients so much more. Um, I don't know how I'd be able to help half the people I do. If, if I were a one guy in a, in a four wall clinic uh, that didn't have a team of people um, to bounce ideas off of. So those would probably be my two points.
0: Awesome. Well, this was, as always, a great chat. I really appreciate the time. Um, enjoy the rest of your, your day. I don't know what you're going to do, but hopefully it's exciting.
1: <laughs> probably only exciting to me and not many other people, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Nice to have a, a clear runway.
0: Awesome. All right, Mike. Really appreciate it, buddy. Yeah, you got
1: it, man. You take care. All right. Cheers. All right, bye-bye.